As a kid, uh, one of my favorite movies was called The, the Court Jester, which was a, a 1955 Danny Kaye film, if that means anything to you, about this, this bumbling carnival performer pretending to be the new royal jester who was sort of pretending to be this jester to help overthrow the, the present evil king and get the rightful heir in place to take the throne. In the movie, so the, the heir was a, a, a little baby, and in the movie, members of the true royal family were identified because they all had this very distinct birthmark called the Purple Pimpernel. And it was, yeah, wildly clear as a flower uh, stamped on this little baby. Uh, but this peculiar mark makes this special family's members pointedly recognizable. And Christians, you have a birthmark too. One that makes you distinctly recognizable. Our birthmark actually isn't faith. Because faith is more like our family DNA. You have to have faith to be a Christian, as it makes us a Christian, like our DNA makes us part of a specific family. A birthmark, however, is something imprinted, in a sorts, on on you externally, that manifests, reveals, or indicates what sort of DNA you have. And so our DNA, biologically speaking, can have a, an accompanying family visible birthmark, just like our faith has an accompanying visible family birthmark. Baptism. Faith constitutes the, the fabric, the genetic material of being a Christian, because faith unites us to Christ. That, as those who have the genetics of faith. Like when you enlist in the military, you are among their ranks. And because you're among their ranks, you wear the uniform. And when you belong to the covenant community, when you are enlisted by God to be part of his church as a believer or as the child of a believer, you consequently need to wear the uniform which is baptism. Now, so what we're going to do tonight is that this sermon is thinking about the meaning of baptism. Baptism's meaning. And the next one is going to explore its efficacy. How is it effectual? So tonight, admittedly, I'm going to speak a little bit unguardedly about what baptism does and what it conveys. And I'm going to be assuming that you'll remember the arguments I made from last time that we were in this series about how God's Word, God's Spirit, and our faith makes the sacraments effectual for our salvation, rather than that the sacraments are effectual in and of themselves. But then we will circle back next week to think about how baptism in particular is made effectual by God's power. So that's the outline of our two-part series of sorts on baptism. Now, what we're going to do is, as may not surprise you, at this we're going to shape our reflections 
for this topic around the Shorter Catechism. So question 94 says, Baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost signifies and seals our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. Now, our main point, we can just bring that down to to brass tacks of sort. Our main point is that baptism seals the beginning of the Christian life. Baptism seals the beginning of the Christian life. And we're going to think about that in three points. The grace of cleansing, the grace of community, and the grace of comfort. So first, the grace of cleansing. One of the things you have to endure from time to time, having a historian in the pulpit, is uh, an old quote. So, James Usher wrote that the sacraments of the new covenant ministry are the sacrament of admission into the church, which is baptism, which seals unto us our spiritual birth, the other sacrament of our continual preservation in the Lord's Supper, which seals unto us our continual nourishment. Now, the point of this quote for us is that Usher helps us grasp a really fundamental issue for being a Christian, namely the difference between beginning and continuing, which seems simple, and yet I think a lot of believers feel that we are always at the beginning, always restarting in life. Maybe some turning point over a crucial issue makes you feel repeatedly at multiple junctures in your life as if you've truly hit the first point of being a Christian. Now, since Scott was born, I have learned a lot about developmental milestones. More specifically, Sarah has explained these uh, to me, to, to be fair. Their point, however, highlights pivotal junctures of maturity that that babies ought to to hit as they grow christians i think though often lack this very category for our lives as believers thinking that there is just birth spiritually speaking and either instant or non-existent full maturity The difference between baptism and the Lord's Supper, though, helps us recover a better understanding that we are born once, but grow continually, hopefully hitting developmental milestones of spiritual maturity along the way. Now, despite the practice of some of our Baptistic friends, we need not receive baptism repeatedly. Especially not every time we hit a new milestone of Christian maturity. We, we need to realize instead that God births us once, spiritually speaking, but matures us progressively. At times with very striking developmental moments, crises even, 
Baptism seals our new birth, happening by our initial cleansing as the Spirit brings us to faith. Romans 6 helps us spell this point out. So Paul's Paul's governing question in this passage that we've read is, are we, and notice all that we've, we've thought about so far, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, do Christians who have experienced God's grace and justification, as he explained in chapters 3 to 5, do they indulge sin because their sin is forgiven? That's his question. But note here Paul's language of continue in sin. There was a former life happening. There was a previous maturity, but a a previous maturity in sinfulness, which is not the sort of maturity we want. He obviously said we should not continue in sin, but responded further asking, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, so in contrast to your maturity in sin, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism buries us into Christ's death so that we might not continue walking in sin but have definitively new life. Verses 12 to 14 then describe how we are to continue from the point of being baptized into Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, the desires that afflict us, right? That that make us want to give in to them. Being Christians should help us resist obeying those. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion. And remember, he had said already, sin doesn't have dominion over Christ. Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace, because of Christ and his death, and because you are baptized into his death. And so we've been crucified with him, as he'll phrase it in Galatians chapter 2. So, God remakes us, giving us newness of life, the new birth, so that we might continue in and unto Christian maturity. But he marks that new birth by baptizing us. And indeed, I think one of the things that we need to become very cognizant of is that God is the one who baptizes us. It's interesting that the New Testament typically speaks of baptism in the passive voice. We were baptized. We have been baptized. Usually without naming 
the one who baptizes. And these passive constructions in Scripture most frequently have God in view as the one performing the action. Pastor Andy graciously passed over a very striking point in his passage this morning so that I could take a crack at it. If we think about John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, John says to us, uh, just one, one short bit here, Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. How does Christ baptize and not baptize at the same time? Perhaps you can remember back when we thought about the preaching of the word and we saw in Ephesians 2.17 that Christ himself preaches through his ordained officers. And now we see that Christ himself back then and today is the one who baptizes us as his ordained officers administer baptism. In other words, Jesus has always baptized through his followers as of applying the sacrament. And yet, it is Jesus doing the baptizing. And baptism unites us to Christ for new life. We've been baptized into him for resurrection life, tying us to him as we believe in him so that we might not continue in sin, but be born again and continue to spiritual maturity. This new life, well, it in fact is our cleansing. And that's our point, that baptism is a grace, it provides a grace of cleansing, which is is the sum of what we're talking about here. This new life is cleansing. Now, I think that I need to spell that out, but I actually want to switch to our next point to bring it to to full clarity. So we've thought about the grace of cleansing, and now we're going to think about the grace of community. And this will bring both the cleansing aspect and the community aspect together. Okay, so maybe you've been to a, a theme park like Disneyland or something like that. And maybe you've seen, or maybe maybe even you are, that family. Right, you, you know that family that has all the matching t-shirts that state how it's the Johnson family vacation of 2022 or whatever. They have a uniform of sorts, marking them as a unit, helping them to spot one another in a crowd so that they can get back together. Because, here's the, here's the point, right? Because these families belong together, they get the family uniform of that cheesy t-shirt marking them all as the same. And in the same way, when it comes to baptism, well, belonging precedes baptism. Baptism is for those who are members of the covenant community. We don't baptize our children even to make them part of the covenant, but because they are part of it. And we need to make sure that we're aware of that. 1 Corinthians 7.14, right? For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, 
your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Our children as believers are holy because they have at least one believing parent. And so because they are holy in some way to God, doesn't mean they're inherently saved, but simply set apart as special to the covenant Lord, because they're holy in some sense, we baptize them. It doesn't, we don't invert that. We don't baptize them to make them holy, but to baptize them because they're holy. But the same is true. That's, that's just a clarifying sort of comment. But the same is true with, with adult converts come by profession of faith, uh, fully into the covenant community for the first time. Those who profess faith in Christ are holy belonging properly to the covenant community. And because they are holy and properly belong to the covenant community, they receive baptism. And so larger catechism 165 adds, whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church. It's a rite of passage, so to speak. Now, Ezekiel 36 helps us connect all of these points together about community and God's cleansing. So if you could think with me about verses 24 to 27, where God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. So we see here, we see here God putting his people together, making them a united community. God took the members of Israel from other nations where they had been scattered, and they bound, and he bound them together in one place, actually typifying, right, for signifying how he takes his new covenant people from among the nations and binds them together into one people. God continues, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And so we see how God's community is bound together as those cleansed by notably sprinkled clean cleansing water. Showing us why baptism is properly sprinkled water as the sign belonging to the covenant community, just to make that clear. The sign of entrance, the sign of beginning. Ezekiel continues, and I will give you a new heart. Right? That cleansing is the new life. We just talked about it in the previous point. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Showing how we are cleansed to be remade as those with newness of life. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Showing, showing then the continuation, the nourishing aspect that follows from new birth. There's a beginning and there's a progress toward maturity. And so our cleansing which God does by putting water on us as Christ himself baptizes through his ordained officers, well, that conveys new life and marks us as 
members of God's community. So baptism then is absolutely not necessarily our profession of faith. In fact, it's not our profession of faith at all. It's not our action, is it? Baptism is God's action to us. We're not the one doing something. God is the one doing something to us. Baptism is God's action of making us alive by cleansing us in Christ. Even if this happens in conjunction with our profession of faith, it is God doing something to us. And His action of painting us with the colors of His covenant community, putting us in the family t-shirt to find each other. And that brings us to our final point. The grace of comforts. We've seen the grace Cleansing, we've seen how that's connected to the grace of community. And now we think about the grace of comfort. And so those, those previous two points were pulling, if, if you kept track, were, were pulling on the shorter catechism statement that baptism is, is a sacrament where washing with water engrafts us into Christ and makes us partakers of the covenant of grace. So we see the cleansing, and the community aspect there. And now we want to think about that last little phrase in the catechism about how baptism signifies our engagement to be the Lord's. Now what does that even mean, really? Our engagement to be the Lord's. So in the proof texts of the catechism, they actually include Romans 6, 4. We were baptized, therefore, with him. Or, sorry, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, too, might walk in newness of life. So in this sense, you know, as they, as they compare catechism reflecting on this text, we're engaged to be the Lord's by beginning to be his in baptism by receiving that sign of admission into the visible church, being initiated. So the initiation of being made disciples. And still, we are engaged that we continue as His, progressively walking in newness of life, which He grants to us. So that's one of the things going on there. But I I would venture... None of, just so we know, the, the, the wording of the standards was always approved and subscribed, but the proof texts were always up for grabs. I think we could have cited another one. I think, I think the divines could have added here Revelation 21, 1 to 4. So the Apostle John wrote, starting here, Then I saw a new heaven... And a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. Right? That sign of, of, of hostility and turbulence uh, had, had been done away with. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Now notice... This is striking. This is, I think this is really interesting. 
Notice how the new Jerusalem here is the bride. So the new Jerusalem, contrary to some who love the city very much, the new Jerusalem is not a physical city, but is the people of It's the bride, the people prepared as a bride for the Lord. And as we are engaged to be the Lord's, we not only begin in discipleship, but we are his betrothed. We are engaged for this season until the end of this age. We are engaged to be his bride when the wedding feast of the Lamb happens, when he returns and our marriage is consummated as we are glorified. And so our baptism is the beginning of life in covenant with God, not its continuation and not its end. And yet, yet, as our engagement to be the Lord's, it promises us the end. It offers the end to us as we are engaged to be the Lord's, waiting to become his full bride when he returns for us at that wedding feast. And then Revelation explains the effects of that bride coming down adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That Abrahamic promise that we've considered before. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Being engaged to the Lord puts us in community, and it also ends in a community. One bound to Christ forever, cleansed for purity. And so we find comfort That baptism cleanses us by and for Christ and ties us to his people. Baptism's whole upshot then, and I hope you hear this, the upshot here of of all of this cleansing and community theology is that baptized believer, God never leaves you alone. He never leaves you lonely. As many as are baptized are necessarily in fellowship, tied to the Lord as his betrothed. Those who receive Christ by faith have everlasting communion with the triune God, who does and will dwell among his people forever. And be our God. But God will dwell with us. Plural. Us. Giving you a family of believers. The community that is the children of Abraham. Who is the father of our faith. Gathering us to be one people. He will take us from the nations. And he will gather us together. And so the Christian life is never solitary. 
nor should we try to live like it is. Christ died to forgive our sins and rose to justify us, so to make us his new Jerusalem, his holy city, his people dwelling together in one place. I think that helps us understand more as we come to read Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6. There is one body, right, the church, and one spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, namely future life in glory, one Lord, Jesus the Savior, one faith, the same means that ties every single one of us to the Lord Jesus, the same means to receive Christ, the one mark, the family insignias stamped on us, the royal birthmark that Christ's community shares. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Our baptism comforts us because it means that we are a people of Christ and for one another. It is the birthmark of the household of faith, identifying those with the DNA of believing in Jesus. You need not compete with the brother or sister next to you. You need not think that this is a community about prestige and ranking. This is a family. We do not strive for prominence over one another because we are baptized into one body. We are bound to one Lord. We are meant to serve one another as members of one body, as your arms and legs all serve the purposes of one body, so each one of us serve the purposes of the one church. And meant to know, ultimately, meant to know the Lord's presence in our midst as we strive together for one another's good. Let's pray.